beautiful people. Today's partner has a product I use every dang day. It's A1 by Athletic Greens. I combine cashew butter, oat milk, frozen fruits, spinach, and one scoop of AG1 every morning, and the taste is heaven. With one scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, and probiotics. There are zero GMOs, no nasty chemicals, or artificial flavors, and less than one gram of sugar. And I know that eating healthy can be pricey and feel elitist, but AG1 costs less than $3 a day. Furthermore, and you know I love this, Athletic Greens is a climate neutral certified company. And for every purchase, AG donates to organizations that help get nutritious food to kids in need. In 2020, AG donated over 1.2 million meals to kids. So to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash gray. that's G-R-E-Y. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash gray to take ownership over your health and support kids in need while doing it. Hi, beautiful people. My name is Brenda Davies. I'm the creator and host of In the Gray. And today we're talking to the brilliant writer and full service sex worker, Tilly Lawless. Tilly is queer, Sydney, Australia based. She's a horse rider and a history major. Tilly is brilliant and I am in love with this conversation. So I'm really over the moon to share it with you. And like all our topics in the gray, you might find Tilly Lawless's perspective controversial. The way she makes a living may push your buttons, but in my view, it is long overdue that we hear from the people our society at large has wrongfully and cruelly deemed as less than or as outcasts. In Tilly's gorgeous memoir, Nothing But My Body, she points to wealth disparity and classism for warping our views on sex work, writing, exploitation only exists because of wealth inequality. She says, I'm trying to work out why being around young people with money makes me so uncomfortable, like when I'm at a party full of people who pay for sex and drugs rather than sell them. In other words, many people in our society participate in drug culture and sex work, but more often than not, it is simply class disparity that determines who is buying and who is selling, who is worthy of respect, and who is subject to utter disrespect. I first discovered Tilly in her TEDx Youth Talk, where she made a compelling call for simply humanizing sex workers and advocating accordingly for their workers' rights. Tilly, like the vast majority of sex workers I've spoken to, is asking for the decriminalization of sex work. She is able to work legally in Australia, which is what we are hoping to see for sex workers in America. And again, this topic is gray because people have a wide array of strong opinions, not only on sex work itself, but also on the best ways to protect those workers. Meanwhile, of course, some less compassionate outsiders would rather demonize the work altogether. In Christianity, I was taught that engaging in sexuality outside of marriage would diminish my worth. 
Well, Tilly describes her sexuality and her very being as something, quote, replenishing and limitless, not a finite source that is whittled down to nothing with each conquest and paid request. She writes, I'm not the wilted rose society thinks I am. But when we diminish people due to their choice or their necessity to enter sex work, our society and criminal justice system behave as though human beings are disposable. Tilly writes, we do get murdered because our deaths are less likely to be investigated by authorities because we are seen to be worth less than other respectable women, expendable, not an innocent victim, but a woman who has invited such treatment through the very nature of her work. We're the favored targets of serial killers, Jack the Ripper, the Green River Killer, and any other violent perpetrator who has benefited from the acronym NHI, no human involved, being assigned to their victims, an acronym that has been used by police for those deemed undesirable, black people, homeless people, and sex workers among them. So, sex work, whether purchasing or selling, may not be your cup of tea, but it is our call as human beings, and definitely my call as a Christian, to protect and love sex workers to the very utmost, and to fight for their human rights and dignity. Tilly is a voice that will guide you to greater levels of compassion and therefore advocacy if you just let down your preconceived notions and allow her to speak the truth to your very soul. Now, on to the episode. Tilly, you and I connected through our mutual friend, Rebecca, who plays the wonderful Elsa Peretti in the Houston show on Netflix. She's just a gorgeous, like, vibrant, hyper stylish, wonderful woman. And um, I just loved reading portions of your book because I could just tell in so many ways we run in the same circles and I have a lot of common experiences with you, whether they be from how it feels to be on drugs or how it feels to Mm -hmm. be in your body during specific sexual scenarios. And I've never heard anyone describe sex and the intake of drugs and all of these other things that spiral in your head, including the torment of losing a lover or feeling like a Mm. lover just like fading away and then having to focus on work and try to concentrate and like let the hours pass. You just articulated all of that so beautifully. And it made me feel like as human beings, we just have so much in common. So inviting all of us into all of that intimacy with you. Oh, thank you. I feel like that's what I'm always trying to do is like get the minute from within myself and sort of show how it's actually just a part of everyone's experience. You know, we all really feel the same fears and insecurities and everything. Yeah, exactly. And it's one thing to let people into your body, so to speak. And it's a very different thing to let people into all of the nuance and complicated stories that you have running through your mind it's Mm. very 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 vulnerable it's amazing what made you choose that title um to be honest I didn't choose a title because I'm terrible at choosing titles um and a friend of mine recommended it and it was actually because I mean this is kind of funny but she chose nothing but my body because it's a line in the book but she chose it because it had the same syllables and kind of pace as the title, Not Without My Daughter, 
which was like this like 90s film that was like quite trash but really popular and she was like yeah you know I feel like that had a real ring to it so you should just have like the same ring to your book so like I was like yeah sure let's go with that and the publisher liked it but I didn't actually tell the publisher that it was tongue-in-cheek like the publisher was like what a wonderful title and I'm like oh my god it's, it's a bit of a joke title like a friend came up with it for like the silliest reason but it it just fit the book really well and like I feel like it just shows that you know with that creative process or whatever like the way we get to things is not always um you know a serious like creative route you know <laughs> I love it you yeah. totally tricked me too I was like how profound how deep yeah. <laughs> But I love that. I mean, obviously you're very tongue in cheek and you have a sense of humor, which I mean, I'm sure is also such a part of survival for me as well. Um, I was also really drawn to you and I wanted to interview you for this because of your TEDx talk that you did in Sydney. Mm -hmm. And from my perspective, it was beautiful. It was poetic. I love the way you articulated your experience and the concerns you have about marginalized people in sex work and your concerns about just being perceived as someone of equal worth of everyone mm. else in society. And I know what an uphill battle that is for sex workers, which is deplorable. Um, how was the, the experience of that TED talk? Because I did see a, a moment where the camera panned and there was all these like youngish looking schoolgirl oh kind God. of chicks. Yeah. They were just like mouths agape, like, oh my God. <laughs> Honestly, that whole experience was like quite funny because so Ted, Ted approached me, right? And they were like, we want you to do a TED talk. And I was like, okay, cool. Like, this is what I would want to write it on. And they were like, okay, great. And then they said, wait, how old are you? And at the time I was 23 and they were like, oh, we actually have to put you in TEDx youth because of your age. Like I think over 25 goes into normal TED and under 25. And I was like, and so they were like, you'll be speaking to a bunch of, you know, children. And I was like, oh, okay, well, like, I mean, I can't change my topic. This is the topic I'm doing, you know? Um, and before I went on stage, they actually had someone go on stage before me, which I actually hated this because I feel like it undermined me. And also the whole point of the way I spoke is like anti-censorship. So it like bugged me, but they had someone go on stage before me and say like, oh, um, you know, just a warning that there'll be some graphic content in this next speech and there might be some words used that your grandma might not want you to hear. And I was like, who are you guys to speak on like what everyone's grandma wants you to hear? Do you know what I mean? And I feel like it also meant that when I went on stage, people were already put on the wrong foot, like expecting this like, you know, controversial speech when really all I'm speaking about is giving rights to sex workers. Do you know what I mean? Like I don't graphically describe sex in any way. Like I'm purely speaking about yeah. human rights. But yeah, the young kids in the audience were definitely surprised because also the people who'd spoken before me was like, you know, a mathematician with this like new formula they found and like a woman kickboxer and like stuff like that. And then like <laughs> I like get on stage. Um but yeah, it was really quite funny. And I think to be honest, like Ted obviously needs to change their, um, the way they divide like adult and because I should have been with adult, like just because I was 23 at the time didn't mean I should be. Yeah. Like, <laughs> anyway. Although thank God, cause that's a nice young crop of voters and people who need to think about these things. Oh, a hundred percent. Like, I think we need to, we need to speak to the next generation. So like in, in ways it was, in ways it was really good. And also I don't think that we shouldn't speak to children about sex. And when I say children, they were like 16, you know, they weren't like 
right. nine-year-olds, you know, like they were like, <laughs> they were people who were probably sexually active themselves, you know, like, mm-hmm. yeah. I hate to imagine, I mean, tell me if you think differently about this, but some of the shocked people, I hate to think we're just like, oh my God, and our an intelligent, articulate, articulate sex worker who's not telling this sob story of how awful sex work is. Every time I've seen someone talk openly about sex work, it has been framed in that way. Like, here's my childhood trauma. Here's what brought me to sex work. Here's how horrendous it is. And, I, you know, all of that. I've never seen someone just simply say the way that you did, this is my body. This is the tool that I use to do the Mm. daily work that I do. And it's a job like any other job. Yeah. I think some people people are often waiting for the trauma story. Oh, definitely. And I think people are also so keen to, I I am really public in speaking about trauma I have in my life because I think sex workers should be able to speak about traumatic things and not have a kind of a false correlation created. Like you were a sex worker because you're traumatized or you're traumatized um, because you're doing sex work. Do you know what I mean? Like I have experienced trauma in my life, but that is not why I became a sex worker. And the trauma that's continued in my adult life generally has been from outside of sex work. Like the most traumatic experiences in the last few years of my life have been in abusive relationships with people. And it's like, they, I wasn't in abusive relationships because I'm a sex worker. Like work a lot of the time was the place where I was escaping those relationships, you know? So I think, yeah, you know, I think it's easy for people to, you know, see one and one and say that equals two. Do you know what I mean? They'd be like, this woman's had trauma, this woman's a sex worker, therefore the two are interlinked. Whereas I'm like, no, the two coexist, but they're not actually caused by each other, you know? Yeah. Like, I mean, it must feel really minimizing. Why do you think people feel the need to create some sort of correlation between trauma and sex work? I think people are so deeply threatened by the job um, that they need to diminish it and dismiss it in some sort of way because it, it, it does just challenge so many notions of, you know, like women and sexuality. And I'm speaking about women specifically because women are who people focus on in their paranoia about about the sex industry. Do you know what I mean? Like we never have people being like, oh, we need to save gay men from sex work. You know, it's always we need to save women from sex work. And that's because, you know, women having sexual desire, women um, earning money through sexual um, uh, sexual acts or whatever, all those things are really confronting to how people think women should behave. Um, so I think I think, I mean, I think sex work has a real, firstly, it has a real radical potential because it's often the way that like working class or migrant women or whatever access wealth and stability. Um, And I also just think it it also, people are so, so many people are so, when it comes down to it, so insecure about themselves as sexual beings, you know, that I think it's also often they project a lot of their own insecurity and like oh I wouldn't want to do that job so therefore it must be a really awful and traumatic job to do you know like Mm. can you walk me through the journey of choosing to enter sex work and then some of the initial process you had going through your head because Mm. I have my same imaginations about it too like I myself 
used to say like before we were really talking about gender and and i had such a little understanding of that sort of thing i used to be like oh i fuck like a guy i fuck like a guy which (laughs) meant to me that i didn't need romance that i was really just motivated Mm -hmm. to have sex with people and i could discard them so to speak or i could get Mm -hmm. attached but it wasn't just the act of sex that did that so i used to like fancy myself as someone that, oh, I wonder if I could do that. But then I have other questions I'll ask you too. But yeah, I'm just curious what the process was, what surprised you, what maybe, I don't know. Honestly, it was, so I started when I moved to Sydney for uni because I grew up in a small country town and I needed money. And I was like, oh, you know, I'd always thought of trying sex work. So I was like, I'll just try it. And I started with an escort agency. And the first client I slept with was only the second man I'd ever slept with in my life, you know? And I expected it to be so, I expected to feel differently after it. And it was truly just an anticlimax. Like I was just like, oh, was that it? (laughs) Like it didn't. um, But I think I will say my perspective on sex work is so influenced by the fact that I am emotionally into women, you know, like I've always dated women, whereas clients are men. And so I think there's a real delineation between my work life and my private life that has meant that, in the same way you said you can sleep with people and sort of discard them, clients have always been like that to me. Like they've never actually, I've never felt like they've permeated beyond my kind of personality, you know? Whereas like with women, like if I'm into them or whatever, like they're touching my soul, you know what I mean? And so like there's, that has made, I mean, a brothel manager I worked under always used to joke that the best sex workers and the ones with the most longevity in the industry were all lesbians and I think there's like definitely definitely some truth to that because I know straight friends of mine who do sex work often struggle to you know if they're having sex with clients all day that are men and then they come home and maybe their boyfriend happens to fuck them the same way a client did that day and they're like oh like what you know it, it can all become like a little bit confusing you know Whereas for me, there's, there's always such a clear separation. Yeah. Mm, It's so interesting. I have been thinking a lot too about embodiment. Um, Is that a term that you use or are comfortable with or that you enjoy? I mean, I definitely speak about my body a lot. I don't know if I would, if I use the word embodiment much, but I yeah, definitely, like, I think it applies. Yeah. Yeah, because it's just really interesting to read you speak so frankly about your body. And then I was looking at your Twitter and your comfort with having your body fully nude and Mm. just splayed and like exposed. And it's almost, I mean, it's really beautiful to see. And it's interesting because as an outsider and someone who's read your book, it feels like you're a very embodied person. And then the only correlation I have to having like sex out of my body or even like, I've never been bored, for example, and you describe Mm -hmm. a lot of boredom at different times, which is totally understandable. (laughs) So I've never like gone out of it because I was bored, but then I did once have, I mean, I've had traumatic sexual experiences, Mm -hmm. but there was one in particular that was the first time for me that I floated and hovered over my body and watched the experience happened and realized afterwards that I hadn't advocated for myself and Mm -hmm. that I had actually just left. And, um, 
And then I think whenever I had imagined being a sex worker, I just assumed, oh, you probably just always have to be in that state of disembodiment. But Mm -hmm. your book describes something very different. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's actually really interesting. Um, Because I think that a lot of the time, if you are disembodied in sex, people associate all disembodiment with trauma, like the, the like kind of what you're describing, you know, like you have an experience where you haven't, where someone's crossed your boundaries or uh, maybe you're actually being assaulted and you, you are watching like, you're not within yourself as that's happening, you know, but as you said as well, like I often am disembodied when I'm bored or just over it. Do you know what I mean? And like, that's not necessarily a bad thing, you know? And sometimes I'm, I'm bored and I'm actually just watching myself in the mirror being fucked and I'm like really bored of the sex, but I'm also like, damn, I look really hot. Like, I'm like, I should remember this, but like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm like, God, I'm so good. Like I really need to get a selfie later. Like, so, <laughs> um, but yeah, so for me with sex, I, with sex with clients, like I, I can never predict if I'm going to be in the moment with them or if I'm going to be disembodied, you know, Um, because it's so, to me, sex is like a conversation in that it's like something spontaneous between two people or more people if there's more. Um, It's spontaneous and you're reacting to each other in that moment and your personalities are reacting to each other and your bodies are also reading each other in that moment. And I never know with it, with a regular client, you know, I know how we're going to interact because we've known each other as people for a while, but like with a first time client, I have no idea if we're going to be sexually compatible or personality compatible or whatever. So sometimes I'll go into a booking thinking that I'm just like, you know, I've just seen like five guys. I'm so over this. I want to go home. And then like, this person just happens to interact with me, with, with me in a way where I'm like fully in my body and experiencing it and enjoying it. And I'm like, wow, I didn't expect this. This is amazing. And it's actually, that was something that when I first started working was a bit confronting because I was like, oh, if I can feel so in the moment with this client, does that mean there's a, there's a level of intimacy there, you know? And I felt uncomfortable with the intimacy, but after eight years of working, and I also felt like if I have intimacy with a client, does that somehow um, undermine the intimacy I have in my private life, you know? But after eight years of working, mm-hmm. I realized that firstly, life is completely unexpected and connection is unexpected. And I should just appreciate it when it comes. So now when I have a client that I don't expect to make me feel turned on, but we actually end up having a really incredible, sometimes even transcend- kind of transcendental sex, I'm like, wow, this is amazing that this is happening. And he might be, you know, really old with a beer belly and like have dandruff falling off his head and not be someone I was attracted to, but the way he happens to touch me and the way I'm responding to him. And I'm like, this is actually wonderful that I connect, can connect with someone like this who I wouldn't expect to connect with. Um, and obviously on the inverse side of that, like I can have people that I like think I would vibe with. And then in the room, they're like, well, I mean, some people fuck. The only way I can describe it is they fuck like they're a black hole. Like they have no rhythm and they're dragging you into the black hole in that like, you know, you get on top to try and control the rhythm and then they fuck from underneath. And you're like, no, no, when I'm on top, uh, this is so I can control the <laughs> yeah. rhythm. You know, like you're like, don't fuck this up. <laughs> um, and I think like it's so funny because like, you know, people say like you can learn to be good at sex. I disagree with that. I think that, I think that, sex is ultimately about reading unconscious cues and reading people's bodies. And I think some people have a natural aptitude for that and some people cannot do that. So I think if you have a natural aptitude, you can improve sexually. But I think if you are not good at listening to someone else's body, you will never be good at sex. 
like and there are some clients who are just like some of them like been married for like 40 years and they the way they fuck you and you're like Jesus Christ your wife puts up with this like you know like it's like what oh like trying to you know touch a clit in a position where the clit isn't even but like far away from the clit like you know up near your belly button like things like just like things where you're like what is going on or like just yeah completely like and anatomically like incorrect things but also just complete lack of rhythm and inability to respond to the rhythm that you're doing you know and like that's really the most important thing is insects as I said is like responding to the other person and I feel like as a culture we focus a lot on on verbal communication but like I think and, and, you know, on like verbal consent and stuff. But I think unverbal is also really important because often you can't articulate it, articulate what you want, but your body can show what you want, you know? Like, yeah. and I think that's, I don't know, I think that's something that we kind of lose in this, in, in this focus on consent because, like, I don't know, consent for me is something that's, not when people say oh you need an enthusiastic yes or whatever and it's like yes of course you need an enthusiastic yes but also consent isn't based around one word you know consent isn't isn't stagnant like it's something that continues throughout the sexual interaction and is like malleable and nuanced and 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 changes as it's occurring and has to be you can't you have to have continuous um spontaneous consent as i said it's like in a conversation you know what i mean like someone can say yes to having a conversation with you, right? Just like we're having a conversation now. But if you asked me a question, right, and you sensed in my reaction that I wasn't quite comfortable with it, you would say, oh, do you still, do you still want to have this conversation or do you not want to have this? Or you would, you would switch to another question. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. you would change it up. You would just sense my discomfort and change. And like that's something that people also need to do in sex, you know? Like it's like that's what I mean about it being like, there's no point getting a fucking enthusiastic yes in that moment because everyone has to be enjoying it throughout. And so I think some people, some people understand that in sex and some people just don't. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Sorry, that's such a monologue, but do you know what I mean? No, that was, no, really beautifully said. I know exactly what you mean because I've slept with a lot of people for free. <laughs> yeah. And, um, they, I, I've had a myriad of experiences like you, like, people that you are just like, how can you not be reading any cue? And for the one time that I, um, it took a long time to realize that I had been raped because Mm -hmm. I never expressed a verbal no. But when Mm -hmm. I went back and embodied the experience through this therapy experience, I realized and recognized all of the nonverbal no's that I had given, the way my body had tensed up, the way I turned my head, the way I froze, like, the therapist was like, there are many, many more ways to say no than just a verbal no. And many more ways to say yes than a verbal yes. A hundred percent. And that's like, there are some people who it is, it is dangerous that they're having sex because they can't read those verbal no's or they don't want to read, sorry, they can't read those nonverbal no's or they don't want to read those nonverbal no's. You know, like I, for example, like sometimes if I'm a doggy, um, and if it, if it feels good or if it's like, you know, not hurting, whatever, like you back up onto the guy and doggy, do you know what I mean? But sometimes if their dick is too big and it hits your cervix, like you move away from them. Right. And like, 
a client who can read that will be like, as soon as he feels me move away a bit, we'll be like, oh, sorry, am I going too deep? Or like, do you need me to change position, right? But then there are clients who will feel me move away and will pull me back into them. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, sure, I haven't said no in that, but like my body has clearly showed that it, it's not comfortable, you know? Because you got me <laughs> thinking about porn because I ethically have not had a, a strong stance against, against porn just by nature of people being on film and having sex. I have mm. no problem with consenting sex between adults under any mm. circumstance. It's that so much of mainstream sex that I was seeing um, before I discovered, trying to forget, I can't remember the platform that's like really good, female made. Um, I'm losing it, but whatever. That's so good. Yeah. Yeah. Like on Pornhub or something, the whole entire front page is like gaping buttholes and women mm-hmm. in non consensual situations and men hitting women at angles that I just know as mm. a woman doesn't feel good. And yeah it has always terrified me to realize that so many young men are getting their sexual education from that. And they're, they're not going to receive any idea about like what it is to actually have an embodied full exchange with another human being. If they're just taking liberties and they're just exercising what they've seen given to them through the view of pornography. Totally. I mean, I always say with porn, like, watching porn to try and learn how to have sex is like watching a James Bond movie to try and learn how to drive. Do you know what I mean? Like (laughs) James Bond does not drive safely or well in the real world. You know, that's a fantasy. (laughs) Porn is also a fantasy. I have to say though, I don't don't think about porn that much. Like I, I I don't, I don't watch porn, like not because I have anything same with you ethically against it. And I know there's so much like women made porn and stuff and I have friends who work in porn, but I personally get off more on my imagination. Um, But I, it's so interesting because yeah, people talk about, it affecting young men and then watching that. But I, from, from working, I don't find that more young men come in and want to fuck me like a porn star than older guys do. Like, I don't find that that's like a, I don't find there's like a generational issue or difference. Like I fully think it comes, it comes down to what I was saying earlier, whether someone has an ability to read unconscious cues or not, because there are men who do fuck me as if we were having por- like having porn sex in that they're like a little bit rough or blah 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 but they're still responsive to my comfort mm-hmm. you know and then there are men who are like what we would call gfe like girlfriend experience you know they want to cuddle and they want to kiss me and stuff but they for example do not read my boundaries at all you know like i will they'll go to kiss me and i don't do kissing at the brothel so they go to kiss me and i'll turn my face away to make it clear that i don't kiss and they will just kiss all over every single part of me and the corner of my lips and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'll be turning my head away and they're still kissing going. And it's like, okay, they're not having porny sex. They're having what they think is really a really sensual experience. Actually sensual for me is the biggest red flag. When a client says they want something sensual, it means they just want to push your boundaries. And really? so like, yeah, yeah. And so like that's the issue there is not porn. The issue there is like men not reading your boundaries or not wanting to read your boundaries. So like I, I definitely think there's an issue with with a lot of men and in how they treat women sexually but I don't think that comes so much from porn I think it comes just from entitlement and like for example example another example I have is like in the sex industry um we we have like a lot of slang terms for things like I just said GFV we also have BBBJ which means bareback blowjob like blowjob without a condom um 
we have a lot of stupid acronyms that are used in escort advertising. So like MSOG means multiple shots on goal, which means the guy can fuck you a few times in the booking or whatever, like such a stupid, like I'm like, that's such a sporty acronym. I hate it (laughs) anyway. But the one I really hate is D-A-T-Y, which stands for dining at the Y, which means like your Y is like your leg. So dining at the Y means like a guy can eat you out. Right. And I, I don't offer oral on me in brothel work because I find it quite intimate. I don't like, I don't like that many people like licking me there. I often don't enjoy it as well. Um, and I find it harder to zone out of than just sex. Um, and so I don't offer it. Right. But there are so many men who pressure me, pressure me to do it, you know, who are like, Oh, but it will be nice for you. And I'm like, Hey, it won't be. And like, B, don't pretend this is about my pleasure because you're going down on me. Like, it's actually about your pleasure. And I'm like, even the acronym is about the man's pleasure because dining at the Y, it means he's enjoying a meal, you know? Mm. It's not it's not the woman being eaten out. It's the man dining there, you know? And so, um, and that's not a, that that's not, you know, in terms of when people think of, porn and like criticize porn and stuff they say oh it's too focused on on the male pleasure like it's all about penetration blah 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 blah. and like you know women should be the ones being eaten out rather than the um woman giving him a blowjob or whatever and I'm like but a man can eat out a woman in a way that also disregards the woman's pleasure yeah Mm-hmm. So like, you know, like all these men who want to go down on me when I say I don't enjoy it and I don't want it, it's still pressure for it. Like they're not thinking about my pleasure. They're thinking about their own, which is so, yeah, basically I just think like porn and sex acts and none of those can be seen as like inherently feminist or objectifying whatever, because it's always about the attitude in the person's mind when they're engaging in it. Yeah, definitely. Do you think that sensual tends to be a red flag then because it implies they're going to force intimacy or try? That's exactly it. Exactly it. They want, yeah, sensual means intimate. And it's like, firstly, I don't think you, firstly, intimacy has to be um, mutual. Like I don't think one person can feel an experience is intimate and the other person isn't. Like then it's not intimate. Do you know what I mean? Like intimacy is is a space or a, or a mood that is created between the two of you. So exactly when a guy says he wants it to be sensual, intimate, whatever, it's like he's wanting to force that mood on you, which is an organic mood. You can't create that. Like you can't falsely create it, you know, Mm. it either happens or it doesn't, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I also think like I can understand tongue like the intimacy of mm. someone's tongue and lips being on me. Like mm. if a guy ever tries to kiss me and I'm not that into him, I definitely relate to the idea of being more comfortable just having penetrative sex versus someone like making out with my mouth. If I'm not into yeah. them, I can withstand the one and I cannot stand the other. And that's another thing I've thought about so much too, like mismatched pheromones. Like when I smell a pheromone that I just cannot get into and it makes me almost nauseous to imagine if I, if I had to engage with them intimately, is that something that doesn't bother you or is it something that's learned to sort of overcome or how do you deal with that? I mean, yeah, I find that really interesting because yeah, I definitely do notice client smell and there is sometimes, you know, smells that I find disgusting and smells that I find attractive. Um, and I 
personally do care about pheromones in my personal life. Like I don't wear, I mean, I wear deodorant, but I never wear perfume. And one of the reasons I don't is because I'm like, I always want someone to be attracted to me just based on me, you know? And, um, but. Do you wear perfume at work? No, I don't. Okay. Um, a lot of girls do when they have like what they'd call like their hooker perfume. Like I have the perfume they wear in their personal life and their work perfume. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I don't. I'm, I mean, I market as like girl next door. So like I, and that just allows me to be incredibly low maintenance. <laughs> yeah. You talk I mean, about like have, coming off the beach, no makeup. Wait literally don't have to have my nails done, all that kind of shit. Um, so like not having perfume also like fits in with that. And actually it's surprising how many clients, also will ask for no perfume partly because they don't want perfume because if they're going home to their wife they don't want to smell of perfume afterwards but also because of that pheromone thing like a lot of them also will ask me not to shower so that when they come along well not a lot but sometimes they'll ask me not to shower and when I get there they'll want to just like smell my armpits and stuff you know as, as well as other things but like that kind of like natural smell um but yeah it's not really something I think about heaps beyond beyond the hygiene of the client do you know what I mean like if a client has a really intensely intense smell that I think comes from not having showered um properly like you know we get client clients always shower before you start the booking but you know some clients wash properly and a lot of clients a lot of men I think don't use soap you know like you see them get in the shower and they just kind of like pat themselves with water and you're like what the fuck like that's <laughs> that is not a shower like that is just like getting caught in the rain like <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> I don't know if this question is mundane because I feel like a lot of people are probably intrigued by just the process, but I would like to know like beginning to end, I've just noticed so many little tricks of the trade that you mentioned, like inserting a sponge when you have your period or certain hygiene things, like having them hop in the shower beforehand, you stripping the bed after, like what is the practice and is it different when you go to someone's home versus being at a brothel? Yeah. I mean, I don't really go to people's homes. Um, I mean, some workers do, but I generally only, if I'm working privately as in like as an independent escort, I only really see clients at hotels just because I feel like a little bit safer than going to someone's private residence. Hmm. Um, but at a brothel, which is the most of the work I do, the way it goes is that client comes in, goes into the intro room, meets each girl one by one, then says to the manager who he wants to pick, the manager tells you, you grab some towels and a drop sheet, which is just a sheet that goes over the bed, take the client upstairs, put him in the shower as he's showering, you put the drop sheet on the bed. Um, then he comes out, you do a quick health check. Like you look at his penis and see if there's like anything that's like, you know, like a herpes sore or something or like um, discharge that's like a bat, you know, a color that it shouldn't be or whatever. Um, then you start with, you know, the service, go through everything. Um, once he comes, you, well, hopefully he comes, <laughs> um, you, um, put him in the shower and while he's showering, you strip the bed. Um, and then as he's getting dressed after the shower, you shower. So that tends to be how it, yeah. How, it goes. Okay. how about, I just feel like you must have such a heightened understanding of, the male psyche. I'm sh- you must have seen so many different people. And I'm just so curious if there's a through line. Cause I did talk to another sex worker friend and they were saying that 
they had never been introduced to so much human loneliness as when they Mm. were doing sex work. So to notice a certain thing like that, that draws a certain type of person or like a certain emotion that draws them there. I see a lot of different kinds of men. There are definitely, there are definitely lonely men. There are definitely also another really common type are really busy men, like who are just working so much that they don't have time for a girlfriend and they, they want to get off. Mm. Um, and they're often not lonely. They're just like cannot fit a partner into their schedule and work as their priority. And then you definitely have a lot of married men who, whether their partner and them don't have sex anymore, or maybe the partner doesn't, doesn't want the kind of sex that he wants. Like he'll have normal sex with her and seek you out for fetish stuff. So there's definitely a lot of married men that are like that. Um, and then there's also a lot of young guys who are, don't have the confidence to pick up girls aren't necessarily lonely, but just don't know how to go to a bar and um, meet a girl. Um, I get a lot of migrant men for the same reason. They come over and their English might not be the best. It's hard to meet girls. It's easier to go to the brothel. Um, Yeah, they're probably the categories. They're probably the types of people that I see the most. But it is true that you get a huge insight into guys' psyche. And also I think the thing that, I really notice is my, um, fuck, what the hell is the word? My, not sixth sense, but there's a word for sixth sense. Your like intuition. my intuition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My intuition <laughs> is just like primed. So I can tell within a few seconds of meeting a guy whether he's going to be okay in the room or whether he's not going to, if it's going to be difficult. Um, and that is a thing that I'm so glad I have because it really does save me in a lot of bookings I don't mean save me as in like save me from getting murdered but like save me from maybe having to cross my boundaries or like uh, do something that I really don't want them to do or like them try and take the condom off during sex or whatever and that is one of the reasons why so I only work sober I have nothing against people who work like drunk on a drugs that's their choice but I personally only work sober because I don't want to affect that intuition at all yeah, yeah. that sounds really really wise uh, cause it's, I mean, how <laughs> I want to get into like the legalization and everything a bit later. So maybe mm-hmm. I'll just pause on that, but I, it's just interesting about the idea of protecting yourself and using your womanly wiles to figure out whether or not you're going to be safe with somebody. Um, I don't know. I guess I don't know how to articulate this, but I feel like I end up almost compelled to take in so much of other people, whether it be their pain or their Mm. joy or their sorrow or whatever relationship story they might tell you about like difficulties in their marriage or a spouse who just passed or something. Like, do you feel that it's difficult or it depends on the person of whether or not you're able to take in these intimate moments and stories and let them go? Have you always been the kind of person that was kind of moving through the world, like aware of what people are going through and somehow able to still stay sane in the midst of what they're telling you. I definitely can stay sane, but I will say there is, I have a very clear capacity of how much I can handle. So I can do three days a week Mm. work. I found I used to, when I was younger, I used to just push it and do five, six days a week. And then I would burn out and not be able to work for months because of that very reason, not so much from the physical side, but from the hearing and the stories and the emotional intimacy and all that kind of stuff. 
Um, so these days I'm like very clear with myself, you know, I'm like, if I work an extra day, if I work a fourth day this week, I can only do two days next week because I've learned that I will just inevitably burn out. Um, so yeah, they're definitely, I, yeah, yeah, no, and I definitely am like a bit of a sponge. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I hate this question even, but I think it's like valuable to address. I'm going to read something that you wrote, if you don't mind, from your book. But just coming from the Christian background, and I know you're well familiar with this as well, I personally see so many similarities between Australian Christianity and American Christianity. We seem to have the Mm -hmm. same hang-ups, same uh, whatever. But um, in Christianity, I was raised to believe that men could actually take pieces of you and Mm -hmm. diminish your worth. Uh, The more dicks you have inside of you, the less worthy your body is. And you wrote... Um, I'm here for the taking, ripe for the picking, to be had, but not in the sense of being a mark. More that I'm not hard to get. All you have to do is pay me. I'm an easy lay, unhindered by virtue, supposedly carrying a high body count as if, as if it's a disease or baggage, when in reality, the soul is self-replenishing and limitless, not a finite source that is whittled down to nothing with each conquest and paid request. I'm not the wilted rose society thinks I am, petals picked by all and sundry. I'm loose, but not loose. My pussy, like any muscle, becomes stronger with each use till it can pull men in and crunch them up. And all that's left of them are some crumpled $50 notes. Beautiful. Oh, that's actually one of my favorite bits. Yeah. I, I so know what you mean. I was ready to do the same thing of that. Like each time, each time you have sex with someone, like you tie your soul to them and you, it's like, it's like you're a cake with like a slice that's given away each time. And I just yep. found it. It's so, I remember even being asked at a thing I spoke about once, like, Oh, well, like, how do you feel like about having such a high body count? And I was like, what? Like, I was like, as if our souls aren't self-replenishing, like you can, I can feel like I can feel my soul being self-replenished if I've gone through a really rough time. And then I have like a really, like a holiday with some friends and I, and I, and I can feel myself reinvigorating. I'm like, how, how are our, how are our souls not like our body, you know, something that can be revived and taken care of. And like, I'm um, actually, some of my friends refer to that the concept of like actually having it like split up and like becoming lesser each time as um, horcruxes, but spelled I like W H O R. That's amazing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I've I've always found that so weird because I'm like, I don't know, like you know, I think of Christianity, like, and I I was raised not my dad wasn't Christian, but my my granddad was a reverend, so like my my extended family is all really Christian, so I was kind of raised like Christian ad- adjacent or whatever, and you know, like went to like like Bible studies and like primary school and stuff. And I've always been like, haven't we always been taught that firstly, like, um, um, God is, oh, what's the word? Omnipotent. Um, omnis- um, what's the word that means everywhere? Yeah. Omnipresent. Yeah. Yeah. And also that Jesus's love is limitless, right? Mm-hmm. Like these are both things that are just completely unbounded. Right. And the soul is not of the earthly realm, right. It's of the spiritual realm. So why the fuck would our soul have boundaries? Like, it's just, it just seems so odd to me. Like, I'm like, of course it's also limitless. You know, that's the whole point of the fact that even when your body is gone, your soul continues onwards because it's, it's, it isn't confined by anything. So I'm like, why, why would we see it as this, like, as this, like, 
yeah, finite resource where bits can bits can be taken from you indefinitely. Like nothing can be taken from you indefinitely. Like I know that from being in abusive relationships, like you feel like you've lost your soul and parts of it, but you can actually, you know, revive and get get those parts of yourself back. So it it just to me that that idea of yeah, women losing something by having sex seems to go against all the actual Christian like theology that I know, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. Totally. I'm just thinking about when I, I've been in one specifically really abusive relationship and then I've had a slew of not so great relationships that felt abusive at times. And Mm -hmm. my reaction to coming out of a bad relationship has often been to thrust my body back into sexuality because for Mm -hmm. me, sex is a moment where I feel like I can be fully present and released Mm -hmm. from all of my cares and, um, I think, I don't know. I wonder how much different or similar your experience might be in that way, because your whole book is about coming out of this really wretched, depleting, heartbreaking relationship and you trying to just survive day by day. And I just can imagine the number of people that would make the correlation and be like, because you're in sex work, you allow yourself to be abused or you don't know you're Mm. as worth being in a good relationship or even the people that feel comfortable coming into your life are going to be abusive by nature because it's a low-class job or it it breeds Mm. a certain sort of immorality in the mix of it. What do you think about those sorts of stigmas that people bring to it? I mean, look, there is a slight tie in some ways in that like I have done sex work because I haven't had wealth, you know, and there is a class, everyone I've dated has been also working class, right? And it's not that working, and I mean, we do know that addiction in society is partly to do with social context, you know, like working class people might have higher rates of depression or like higher rates of social isolation, more financial stress. All those things are compounding factors that cause addiction. And because I've dated people from a similar class background to me, I've also coincidentally dated dated a number of addicts um, mm. who have had mental health problems and that has led to really dysfunctional relationships. I don't think that's a sex work issue. I think it's a it's a it's a class issue and a society issue. And sex work happens to be a working class labor based job, if that makes sense. Um, but yeah, in regards to the you know throwing yourself into sex after like a bad relationship, I definitely have found my work escapism at times. Um, the one thing I really try and avoid doing, and I guess which is also I try and cover in the book, is I really try and avoid throwing myself into emotional intimacy to heal a breakup because I think that's what a lot of people do when they jump from one relationship to another, like immediately after a relationship, is is they're seeking out that emotional intimacy. And I think it's actually not sexual intimacy that's the issue post, post a relationship. It's actually needing to have time for your mind and soul to be by itself and process what's occurred. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I also want to talk more about the class disparity and the wealth disparity that you're talking about because it's it has me banging my head against a wall the way people perceive sex work and the way 
we choose to continue, continually stigmatize it, continue to make it so unsafe for the most vulnerable of people. And I pulled another quote from your book where you said, I'm trying to work out why being around young people with money makes me so uncomfortable. Like when I'm at a party full of people who pay for sex and drugs rather than sell them. And another beautiful quote, trafficking only exists because borders exist and exploitation only exists because of wealth inequality. I just think about those things so often, even for example, the difference between the working classes drugs, like what kind of drugs Mm -hmm. they'll take versus the cocaine and the more high-end things the rich will take. Everybody is doing drugs. Everybody is having sex. Everybody is doing these illicit things, but it seems to be the ones that are stigmatized and punished so heavily for it are the ones that simply don't have the wealth to back up their behavior. A hundred percent. And I think about it too when like working class people are loud and stuff and people think they're like ratchet and gross. But when a when a really upper class like British person is a certain way, people think they're eccentric and interesting. You know, <laughs> like they're allowed to behave outside the moors because like they've got they've got enough money. Um, yeah, this is interesting because actually the group of people I was speaking about in that part were were people that I were people that that was how I met Rebecca through this like group of like rich London people (laughs) um and like obviously love those people like have some great friends amongst that but there's a there's a true disconnect for me um in the way in the way our lives have been and I don't it's so class is such an interesting thing because I feel like people are so ready to talk about like white privilege. You know, you, people can talk about white privilege, cis privilege, thin privilege, straight privilege, like, you know, are very happy to be like, I have those things, but really reluctant to admit class privilege. And if you point out someone's class privilege, they think you're saying that they haven't worked hard enough or you're saying that I remember, I remember pointing out class privilege to a friend of mine who's wealthy. And like, she was like, are you accusing me of nepotism? And got like really like upset at me. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. You're making that, you're making that leap. You know, like I was simply pointing out your background, you know? And then like, there's something, yeah, people are so reactive about it. I think because it, really they feel like it's tied to their success or I I don't know it's like I don't know I remember reading once I can't remember which queer theorist said this but there was like a quote that like um class is the invisible ghost of queer theory and I was like that is just so true because it's something people still do not want to speak about like yeah I've never thought about that before but I have thought a lot about the the nature of queerness and how that being queer brings together so many marginalized people in one space because being queer in many places is still a marginalization and still makes life unsafe and makes people that are coming from systems of wealth or families of wealth, they can still end up on the streets unceremoniously Mm. because of their sexuality. Mm -hmm. So it does seem like these beautiful pockets that you found yourself in of really like chosen family, it sounds like, are where you are seeing so many of these intersections and you weave them all through the book and talk about um, being at a nightclub and, and watching your friend go away in a wheelchair, realizing that the next club you go to, she wouldn't even have Mm. access to because, you know, and I just, 
think those are such beautiful observations. Do you think this is in just your personality and your nature to be so observant of other people and their experiences? Or do you think in some ways your work and being queer has just simply made you a more compassionate person? I actually think it's a combo of both. Like I think I have always been fairly perceptive, but I think, as I said earlier, like having experiences with people that I'd never normally interact with and never even think that I could connect with and have an insight into really personal parts of their life has made me, you know, realize I know this phrase gets thrown thrown around a lot, but like everyone's got something going on in their life. Mm. And like you can never sort of assume the perspective that like someone is coming from. So yeah, work has definitely, definitely heightened it just by the sort of like wide mix of people um, that I've come into contact with. Yeah. Yeah, That's beautiful. I'm also curious about shame. I wonder Mm. what your relationship is to shame, if you even have one, (laughs) because (laughs) I just love the way you move through the world and describe it. And then also how many of your clients might bring in shame? So for me, that's such an interesting question with shame because I have I have a huge issue with the word pride, queer pride, because like I think pride is a reaction to shame and I don't think we would be so focused on pride if we didn't have shame. So for me, I'm like eradicate shame and we no longer have a need for pride either. Um, and I also, I also have an issue with pride because I think pride focuses on you as an individual and your relationship with yourself when we should be so basically back in the 70s when queer rights activists were first debating this they were deciding between queer pride and queer power and they ended up going with pride because they thought it was less threatening to straight people and I think they did the wrong thing there because I think we should be focused on the collective because when you're talking about power you're talking about everyone's emancipation and empowerment rather than with queer pride you can say oh well I'm happy with myself so I don't need to worry about these gay asylum seekers being locked up you know what I mean um so yeah I have an issue with pride for that reason but yeah largely because I think it is a response to socially sanctioned shame I don't feel shame about my queerness I never have I've never felt shame about being a sex worker um but those things are not I also think shame and pride are often tied to insecurity and the one thing I say that I will sometimes feel shame and self-consciousness about is when I've been in a group of wealthy people and I'm suddenly aware of the fact that I don't get what they're talking about or, like, I can't do the references. Like, just little things, like, at a dinner table when someone will say, like, prosciutto or something and I'll be like, oh, what's prosciutto, you know? Like, I, like, don't know what that is or, like, I mispronounce. Fuck, what is that one that the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Things like, yes, exactly. Shit like that. Like I don't know those references. Or like I remember once going to a friend's house and being so self-conscious because her, her family home, it was like so clean. And she had one of those things in the sink where it like chops up all the food. And then like in her bathroom, she had um, nail clippers that were like those, not like I'd always grown up with nail scissors. And she had those brand new nail clippers. And I was like, what are these? And she was like, they're nail clippers. And she was like, have you never seen them? And I was so embarrassed. And I just went, oh, I just couldn't recognize them, you know? And like, so things like that, I felt shame in when I've been suddenly aware of like, I don't know these things. Like I don't come from this wealth background that you, you come from. And I also, and I'm aware of the fact that I feel resentment sometimes and um, bitterness about rich people and people who've come from wealth. And so for me, I know that I feel shame there and I know I feel pride about the fact that I've made it on my own. And both of those things I think are deeply unfortunate because I think they're tied to insecurity. And I think that 
ideally I should feel about my class the same way I feel about sex work and queerness, which is that I feel no shame. I feel no pride. It just is, you know? Mm. Um, but with clients, yes, there are definitely clients who come in and you can tell not, not many, but you do have clients who come in and you can tell usually in, in the lead up to it, like while they're horny, the shame is gone. But once they come, you have ones that won't make eye contact, will leave without saying goodbye to you are like, obviously, really ashamed of whatever's just occurred. I don't know whether it's because they have issues with paying for sex or whether they've cheated on their wife. It could be one or both, you know. But for me, no, I don't feel shame around my work, yeah. Sorry, that was once again such an extensive answer. I think about pride and shame a lot. (laughs) No, I do not apologize for that answer. I think that's beautiful because... That's exactly the way I see it too. I I had to willfully emancipate myself from sexual shame because it was heaved so heavy upon me. And now I have full absence of it, absence of like body shame, but I'll find shame pop up if I hurt someone's feelings inadvertently, mm. I'll feel shame. And you're just mm. like, oh, that, there it is, you know? And yeah, that's yeah, yeah. probably more appropriate where it belongs. I think that's interesting though about the wealth disparity because in your profession and in your book, you describe so many situations where people are just so demeaning and condescending to you, um, not realizing you have that giant stack of books behind you on your shelf that you've read, you know, like just treating you like, oh, because you're here, I'm going to educate you or enlighten you kind of like the pretty woman concept. Or something. Yeah. Like, oh, that must be so annoying. <laughs> It's definitely annoying, especially when you're being condescended to by a guy and you're aware that you're smarter than him. You're like, this, I don't want to be condescended to by someone who's smarter than me, but when I can tell I'm smarter than them, I'm like, this is fully insulting. Like, exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, God, I just wrote down, I, that was interesting tip that you will stare at the temple between someone's eyes in missionary position. So... And that's a trick. So it feels intimate, but you don't have to go into that intimate space. Well, yeah, you're not actually making eye contact. It's so good. I actually had a guy compliment me the other day because obviously I was yeah, just staring at his temple the whole time. And he said, you're out. He said, your eye contact is out of this world. And I was like, oh, thanks. And like, I'm like, I'm actually just staring at your temple. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. And it's, wow. Just like such an interesting dance. I mean, just the use of your body, your mind, your emotional labor, your physical labor. I mean, I know even just after having a long session of sex, the way your body can ache, you talk about how your wrist hurts from Mm. jerking people off. Like these are just real life issues that come from being working class. Yeah. 100%. And anyone who's any worked any physical labor job has got some sort of issue with some part of their body. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Um, Okay. So then to wrap it up, I do want to get into what's really important. Just thank you for sharing so much intimacy with everyone through your book. It's gorgeous. Do you find writing to be a catharsis? Because for me- Oh, definitely. Yeah. 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 Just the output of all of that was, it just flows naturally. We both also, I wrote a book as well, and we both have scenes that take place at Bergheim. Do we? Oh my God, I want to read yours. Yeah, mine actually culminates at Bergheim because I had a very beautiful spiritual experience dancing in that place by myself. Went completely alone. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, definitely link me. I would love to read it. Yeah, I will. I will. 
Um, but yeah, so let's talk about safety. And now that we've spent an hour, like proving you're a human being for the love of God, (laughs) for anyone who needed proof, again, the most stunning thing about your TEDx talk was that the message I got is like, it doesn't matter what you think of this morally or intellectually Mm. or anything. All that matters is that you advocate with us to decriminalize this work. So could you give like a full synopsis of like, what would be the most ideal thing we could do, especially in in a country as broad as America? I know you're not an expert in America, but like Mm. for the Americans listening, what works in Australia with legalized sex work? What do you wish would work better? And how could we start conquering this beast in a real way in America? So, yeah, I think there's two issues around sex work. There's um, like policy and legislation and then there's stigma. Stigma is obviously fought through things like what we're doing now, like discussing it and, and stigma changes slowly over generations. You know what I mean? But then legislation is something that can be changed like that, you know, but like obviously requires a lot of advocating and things like that. So in in New South Wales, where I am, we have decriminalisation and we've had decriminalisation since 1995 and we're the first place in the world to get it. And the reason we actually got it is this is important to understand context around um, legislation around sex work and how it endangers sex workers. We got it because there was a Royal Commission into police corruption and it was found that police were money laundering through brothels, were raping sex workers, as in being like, I'll arrest you if you don't have sex with me, things like that. Police, it was said through the Royal Commission that police are fallible and human. Therefore, the sex industry needs to be moved out of police control. So they decriminalized it. Mm. Decrim is different to legalization or licensing. Sex worker rights groups want decrim, not legalization or licensing, because legalization or licensing models basically means the sex industry is subject to different rules and regulations than other industries. So, for example, um, uh, Amsterdam has a legalization model. So does Nevada. They have a legalization model. Um, and legalization can mean different things in different places. Like some places it might mean you need to register as a sex worker. Other places it might mean it's legal to work in a brothel, but illegal to work from your home. But as I said, it it puts, it, it creates all these gray spaces where some ways are legal to work and others aren't and still leaves um, sex workers uh, vulnerable to police interference, you know, um, and criminalization obviously leaves sex workers completely vulnerable to police interference. And anywhere with criminalization or the Nordic or Swedish model, which um, leaves leaves sex workers vulnerable to violence from police. So in Ireland, for example, the Garda, which is like their version of police, will often rape sex workers, you know, in that in the process of arresting them, things like that. So. And the other issue with criminalization is you're criminalizing a job that often women are doing to survive, to look after their children. You're putting them in jail. They get a criminal record. It's harder for them to get another job. They just end up back in sex work. It just becomes a cycle of them going through sex work, through jail, getting fines, having to work to pay off their fines. Like it's not actually, as you just said, like it doesn't matter your moral view on sex work, but criminalizing it just makes people in the industry more dangerous, uh, sorry, more endangered, more marginalized. So we want decrim, which decriminalizes all sex work specific laws doesn't mean it's a fucking free-for-all doesn't mean what a lot of people interpret it as like oh you can have sex with children or you can um have sex if you're hiv positive willy-nilly without disclosing to people because all the laws that still exist around sex still exist it just means it's treated like other industries so america america is 
to be honest, quite unique when it comes to sex work because it is truly a country that is anti anti like sex work is like truly built into the culture. Um, so America, for example, is the only country in the world where you are banned from entering if you've ever done prostitution, which is what they call it. So, for example, no. if, yeah, so any other country in the world, it can be illegal to enter if you're planning on doing sex work while you're there. America, if you've done prostitution any time in the last 10 years, regardless of the legality of where you did it, it's illegal for you to enter because it comes under their like vice things or whatever in the same way as they won't allow people with a drug record to enter and stuff. So for me, technically, it's illegal for me to enter America. I have entered it. I had to lie about what I did. Um, but legally, they can turn me away. Like I'm an inadmissible alien because I've done sex work in my country, even though it's decriminalized here. Um so America, unfortunately, has like a whole other set of culture there that I think will make it very, makes it very difficult for those laws to be changed. But basically in every state in America, you have criminalisation, except for Nevada, which has a legalisation model, which is obviously the sex workers can work in the brothels, the licensed brothels, but not anywhere else. Um, I think, look, I'm not, I am not up to scratch enough with America in knowing which politicians support decrim of sex work. Um, I know um, Kamala Harris, for example, is really anti-sex work. And when she came, it's really interesting because I'm seeing now when, when she was coming in, I feel like a lot of um, liberal women really supported her. And now in like the last year or something, she hasn't really pulled through with like a lot of the promises or promise like or potential that people saw in her in terms of being a radical force. Um, but I can say that sex workers distrusted her from the beginning because mm. in the same way a lot of black people distrusted her, which is that she was very ready, has always been very ready to put people in jail. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't know which specifically, um, which politicians are supportive of decriminal sex work. I know that often libertarians are just because of the perspective that anyone should be able to do anything that they want with their body or their life. Um, Democrats, unfortunately, often aren't because they have this misguided view of like needing to protect women from. I mean, in America, people conflate sex trafficking and this and sex work, which is like all the time. Yeah, really frustrating. I mean, legally, sex work is viewed as sex trafficking, you know, and in some states, you can actually get tra charged with trafficking yourself, which is completely crazy because if you're trafficking yourself, that's you're obviously just doing sex work. Do you know what I mean? Like you're yeah. on, like you can't possibly traffic yourself. Like that's just like, but you can get charged with it. So um, I think what I would recommend is SWAP is Sex Worker Outreach Project, and SWAP exists in a number of states in America. And I would get in touch with them in your state. I don't think they're in every state. They're definitely in California and um, New York and a bunch of states. I would get in touch with them or go on their website and find out um, what kind of things they recommend in terms of advocacy because, I mean, I'm up to date with Australia, but America is a huge country and just like another kettle of fish entirely. Yeah. No, that's perfectly okay. I think just knowing that the keyword we're looking for is decriminalization yes. or decrim. And yeah, that's and that's, I'll for. say that's, yeah, that's what we're going for. Amnesty International supports decrim, World Health Organization supports decrim. Like that is the policy that best protects the human rights of people in the sex industry. Regardless of whether or not they want to be in the sex industry, that's what 
also allows them to leave the sex industry more easily, decrim than criminalization. They're not being put in jail, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, decrim is what we want. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I don't want to put this weight on you, but just because of your lived experience and the experiences you've had watching women that are migrant women that are marginalized, that are trying to survive, get practically aged out, like being a 60 some year old sex worker trying to survive with no other outlet. I am constantly stunned that people are always trying to enforce morality without looking at the humanity that's involved. Mm. And also without putting the onus on as always, men, the men that are buying sex, men have no intention of stopping their, you know, buying sex, especially men in power, especially wealthy men. So truly like the way to protect the women and the way to frame the women would be through this lens of compassion. Could you just tell us on that for a second? Like, why should we give a shit about sex workers and their rights and protecting them? I, I could go forever, but you talk. Oh, I mean, honestly, I think you should just care about them because they're human in the same way that I care about, you know, a person experiencing homelessness, even if they're someone who obviously has a drug addiction and people don't think that we should have compassion for, or, you know, in the same way you should care about, um, prisoners in jails who may have committed awful crimes like they're they're still human and um yeah really I I I just believe that we should we should care about everyone everyone is deserving of rights because we're human you know like I don't think rights are something that can be um taken away given or taken according to how you've behaved or respect or respectability or anything like that like they're the whole point of a right is that they're a base a base right you know like it's something that we're all entitled to that we shouldn't have to prove or seek out or like so yeah that's why that's why we should yeah yeah america is just it's hard and it, it's disheartening over and over again because people are so intent on eradicating things that they perceive to be problems that are not yeah. like they just want to stop 16 year olds from having sex and they'll go on platform and they'll go on the news and they'll march around their town and take away sex education all in the name of stock- stopping 16 year olds from having sex. And it's like, mm-hmm. you've done literally no work. There's still <laughs> just as many 16 year olds having just sex. just made things worse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, only yeah. Not, yeah. They don't know what protection yeah. is and they don't know how they even get pregnant. Like, it makes the problem worse. And then with sex work too, like I know the the budding against this will be like, but it's awful and it's morally re- reprehensible. And what if you're sleeping with my husband and all of yeah. those things, but it does just have to come down to compassion because even if you as an individual might be hurt by the choice that your partner makes to see a sex worker, that sex worker, whatever brought her there, which as we've covered, isn't necessarily trauma. It could just be um, circumstance and necessity and trying to survive. So what you are doing to me is not inherently harmful in any way. It then goes back to the man and why he is there. And is that harming people in his personal life? But to make that your responsibility when like we've already established, these are women that are simply trying to survive another day. It's just- Well, I always say the man is seeking out the sex worker. The sex worker is not seeking out the man. Oh, wait. Well, like he's- did I say that? Yeah, yeah, no, totally. Yeah, I agree with you. No, I'm sorry. I was just saying, I was just like shortening what you're saying. I completely oh, yeah. agree with you. 
like it's an issue it's an issue between the man and his wife and their relationship not like you know mm-hmm. it's like not involved at all yeah 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 no I was completely agreeing with what you were saying so <laughs> <laughs> I was like I, I started with a butt so it seems like I was gonna rebut you <laughs> but I actually I was just using butt as a way to enter into adding to what you were saying I think the last thing I would have wanted to ask you is about mm. OnlyFans and the TikTok myth that that sex work is gonna just like catapult you into all this money but you- oh my god yeah I, I mean just you go you have plenty of to content. answer that all I would say is that like I am sex work is not a get like get rich quick scheme and all the success stories you see on OnlyFans are exactly that they're the success stories and you're not seeing all the all the the myriad of other stories um and I am very careful when I speak about sex work to speak realistically about it like the bad as well as the good um because it is of course a difficult job um as many jobs are and it isn't actually a job that you can rely on income wise to always be earning it's like it's completely up and down and unpredictable yeah 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 so tread wisely all you young young ones yeah (laughs) anyway it was so lovely to meet you you too take care bye see you bye thank you